Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Please review and subscribe to the Groundless Ground podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Radio.com, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and of course, find out more at GroundlessGround.com. I'm ready to go. How about you? I come to you from yet another period of lockdown in Silicon Valley. 300,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 in just 10 months. Remember how deeply our nation grieved the loss of 3,000 Americans on 9-11? 100 times more Americans have died in 2020, and yet America doesn't seem to care. Selfishness rules, altruism, and sacrifice have vacated the national psyche. And so, as we end 2020 in lockdown, Americans seem to be either grieving the ungrievable or unforgivably spending yet another day negating this horrific COVID reality. In this year of radical loss, opening to grief is an essential guidebook for anyone navigating grief and loss. Claire B. Willis, author, clinical social worker, ordained lay Buddhist chaplain, and yoga teacher, talks about her journey writing this book and shares expert counsel about the many ways to honor any form of loss you might be experiencing as 2020 comes to a close. This is an invaluable episode for ending a horrifically strange year and doing what we can to bravely move into 2021 renewed and ready for change. I wish each of you health and well-being for your holidays and a very happy new year. Claire Willis, it is a true honor to have you on the Groundless Ground podcast, and I'm very excited for us to talk about grief in the three years, believe it or not, that the podcast has been going on, I have not had a chance to really talk to someone who spent their life working with grief and grief healing. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So you have just published a fabulous new book called Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. And it really is a grief manual, very usable, very accessible. I'm so glad that you and your co-author, Marnie Crawford Samuelson, have written this book. Accessible is a wonderful word because one of the things that came up over and over when people endorsed it was they used the word companion, that this book was a companion. And I... That to us was the supreme compliment because one of the things that we wanted was when people read the book to feel that they weren't alone in their grief. To me, that tells people that the book really leaves them knowing that others are in this journey with them. Even though we know it intellectually, we often don't know it emotionally. Maybe we should just start off with a little of your background. You are a clinician as well as an ordained lay Buddhist chaplain. Say a little bit about how those two things have complemented each other over the course of your work with grief? 
Well, when I started this work, I wasn't doing Buddhism. I wasn't studying it. I hadn't done much in it with the practice. And then over time, as I began to immerse myself in the practice and finally get a teacher, I realized that the practice was completely syntonic with the clinical work I was doing. And it gave me a lens through which to invite people into their grief, which I've actually found to be very helpful because the psychology of grief and the spirituality of grief were through the Buddhist lens are really quite congruent. So it was a very nice marriage. And it's been a wonderful practice for me to have as I do this work and to pass it on to people, not in a didactic way, but just through little practices that often are comforting for people that I work with. And that's literally what the book is. It's so great. Some knowledge and then practice that people can do. And it flows very beautifully through the main skills that a person really needs when they are grieving this wisdom view, as well as heartfelt compassion. Well, I think one of the messages we wanted to come through is that grief is an expression of our love. And to suppress our grief is to suppress our love as horrible and tragic and as much suffering as COVID has brought to us, the one thing that has come along with it is more normalizing of grief in our culture. Because I think years ago, it wasn't such a common word. And now you can see articles in the Times, we see articles in the Atlantic, we see them in mainstream media. It's giving people a handle for what they're feeling, because it's making it legitimate. Often in my bereavement groups, people will say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm crying, or I didn't mean to break down. And that is such a sad statement, because if you're apologizing when you're in a bereavement group for crying, you can only imagine the cultural messages that they're living at the effect of. And so that's part of what drove me to write the book, is I wanted to normalize the grief journey for each person so that the questions wouldn't be, am I grieving right? I, I didn't mean to cry. Oh, I had a bad day. I didn't, I don't know what happened. I was doing so well. And all of a sudden, and these are all just parts of the journey. And I wanted to put that in print in some way. You might agree with me that the psychiatry and psychology world have done grief a great disservice for a very long time in the DSM. Bereavement was only supposed to last two months. And if it lasted longer than that, you were actually suffering from clinical depression. You've been in this field for decades. So maybe you'd like to say a little bit about even how the field is beginning to view grief differently. That's a great question, and it's a complicated question, because I don't want to discount the work of any previous psychologist or researcher. But I will say this, that there are a lot of grief models that are floating around over which people will lay and compare their grief. We can't have one model that's right for everybody, and grief is as particular as there are people who are grieving. It has a different face for everybody. And I think typically we think of grief as sadness, sorrow, loneliness, despair. But actually grief has gratitude in it. It can have joy in it. It can have relief. It can have regret. It has anxiety. It has fear. It's a word under which there are many nuances of feelings. And I think that's one of the ways of giving people a handle for what they're experiencing. And so right now, I mean, with COVID, there's a lot of agitation. 
Some of it's anticipatory grief, and some of it is just the loneliness that it's brought into people's lives, the uncertainty that it's brought into people's lives. A lot of it is grief because for most of us, we've lost any semblance of the life we used to know. That's right. The other thing about COVID, despite the the numerous losses that it's generated, it's also resurrects for people earlier griefs that they may not have grieved. There's a saying in the field that I'm sure you know, what we resist will persist. And so if we haven't grieved a loss from the past, and then we come into this time of COVID with multiple losses, those old griefs are likely to resurface. And that can be very perplexing to people. I don't know why I'm thinking about my mother that died 20 years ago. That's why. And so it's given us an opportunity, hopefully, to legitimize grief and to grieve more openly with one another. Yeah, it's so interesting. I feel as though people primarily have been suffering from the cultural misappropriation and misunderstanding around death, as well as what happens to those who are left behind it's been so separated out from our sense of what life is. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things that it's done is it's put death on the horizon for all of us. <laughs> None of us is exempt and that the impermanence of life is right there. Stephen Levine uh, has a, a great little phrase where he says, looking at death is like looking at the sun. We look, we turn away, we look, we turn away, because if we stare at it, it'll burn our eyes question becomes, how can we allow the possibility, the inevitability, I shouldn't say possibility, the the inevitability of death to temper our lives and deepen the way we live with more meaning, knowing that this could all end in a minute. And I think COVID's brought some of that to us, the fragility of our life. And when we really encounter that, we live differently. If we can hold on to it, Joan Halifax used to say, she was one of my Buddhist teachers, she used to say, when you wake up in the morning, think about death. At noon, think about it. And at night, not to be morbid, but to make sure that you're spending your time in the morning the way you want. You're spending your time in the afternoon the way you want and at night. And so it becomes a, a, a North Star. Yeah, this is such a tricky point, especially when you add in the Buddhist teachings. On the surface of it, It would appear as though the Buddha's teachings are nihilistic, which they are not, and that they invite in a kind of dour view. I actually want to just go back to when you use the word impermanence, because to me, human beings embracing quote unquote death has a lot to do with the fact that, well, that last moment I just had is gone. It's never coming back. And ultimately that's the death we live every moment we're alive. We're always dying as we are living. That's one of the questions I often ask my clients, what's dying in you and what's being born in you? Because they're just opposite sides of the same thing. I would like to just kind of dive into this fabulous manual that you've written for grief. And I love the way it starts. First chapter is titled Meeting Grief as a Companion. So I really would love you to talk about making friends with grief. Making friends with grief is a way of deepening our capacity to love. If we don't allow ourselves to grieve, we are blocking our capacity to love. So I think of it as a way to deepen our relationship to ourselves as well as to others. That when we 
realize we're part of the human race and that we're all suffering and that we're all grieving, it deepens our connections with one another. The word companion means one with whom I break bread so that it becomes a way not to separate ourselves from others. If we can befriend and companion the grief we feel, it allows us not only to have a deeper relationship with ourselves, but it allows us to be with other people who are grieving. Because if we can't befriend our own grief, we are going to be hands-off people who are grieving. And you hear that a lot from people who have lost someone they love. They'll say, a lot of the people I thought would be there for me have disappeared. And other people have come forward. I personally want to be someone who can be intimate with someone who's suffering. That requires me to be intimate with my own suffering. And that kind of intimacy looks like what? It looks like being willing to let your heart break open. It involves being kind to yourself and being compassionate towards whatever arises in yourself, not to invoke the judge that many of us probably had as children, the committee of judges and critiques and shame callers that live inside many of us means bypassing them and finding a way to be kind. Because after the chapter on grief as a companion is the chapter on starting with kindness. I think of these chapters as connected with different titles. I agree. Most people have very little intimacy with their emotional life in general. So how beautiful is it to first open up this kind recognition of suffering and then this sense of gratitude, even in the midst of a disaster? I think for most people, the loss of something or someone or a relationship, whatever it is, feels like a disaster most of the time. It does feel like a disaster to a lot of people. Hopefully over time, the disaster or the loss or whatever it is, we are able to find meaning beyond the disaster of the loss. So the first part of the book is almost like a little introduction to a bunch of skills, a toolbox, basically, that somebody can reach into in a moment where they are needing some kind of refuge. And I just want you to kind of talk about the toolbox there's a structure to each chapter, and the structure is, very, is the same. It starts with a quote or a poem. There's the reflection that Marnie and I wrote. At the end, there's a meta-meditation, which is a loving-kindness meditation, or what we call a tender friend meditation, that applies to the content. And then we have a little section called Suggestions for Getting Started. And they're just little movements that amplify the message of the chapter. So one of the chapters is called Starting with Kindness. One's called Being Grateful, Restoring in Nature, Writing as a Refuge. And what we do is the, each chapter we think of as a resource to enhance our ability to hold grief and to give us an opening to grief. And then these little suggestions, there's like three or four at the end of each chapter, are just little steps we offer as suggestions, certainly not as any kind of teaching or anything, but just suggestions that might be useful to the reader for getting started. And sometimes when we're grieving heavily, we can feel paralyzed. And so these little suggestions are just there to help people move forward a little bit in the direction they may want to be going or in an area that has interest for them. You know, that part one looks like a set of skills that I offer my patients early on for almost everything they come to me for. I don't know about you, but 
99% of the people who come into my office are grieving something. Sometimes they know what they've lost and sometimes they don't know, but they're carrying ungrieved grief. And that helping people identify that opens our capacity for joy and opens our capacity for loving, uh, living much more deeply and with more vitality. But I think often people that show up in our office are coming to grieve what they never had in some way or another. And it's so interesting how many people in our profession have no training in grief. A lot. Unfortunately, yes. But, you know, I think that's going to change now because especially with COVID, there's been a lot of online training programs. I've been doing some CEU work. There's been a ton of courses online about grief. So I think it's, it's getting more mainstreamed now. It needs to be lifted from the shame. Grief is often can be laced with shame. Someone very close to me recently lost their dog. And she said to me the other night on the phone, I wouldn't say this to anybody but you, but I'm sleeping with his favorite toy. And it was so tender. And, and mm-hmm. in our, my bereavement group, I often hear people say, I'm doing this or that, but I wouldn't say it anywhere but in here. And these stories need to be public. We need to be telling these stories to each other outside the bereavement group so that we normalize these little ways that we keep our continuing bonds with those we love. So I'm wondering if you've been working with people for whom their relatives or loved ones got sick very quickly with COVID, ended up in the hospital, and they never got to see them. Yes. Family death process without any family. Yes. I have several clients who lost uh, spouses and partners to cancer and couldn't be with them. I have one person who lost someone to COVID and couldn't be there at the end. Because most of my work has been with people in oncology, that's been most of my experience. What I'm seeing also is that most of the clients I work with are having to go into the hospital for treatments. And sometimes they get hospitalized and no one can visit them. COVID has shaped the whole caregiving industry. Whether you have COVID or not, the impact on the patient is really the same. They're alone. And I've also had a couple of clients who were, saw their partners into death at home and couldn't get the hospice care that they needed. So they ended up doing the work themselves because they didn't want to risk people coming in from hospice to help take care. You know, it's just there's so many layers to this. And for older people who don't have the capacity and the wherewithal to take care of one another, it's especially painful. This, of course, is a loss. We a loss. have certain expectations built up about, for instance, what end-of-life care is supposed to look like when your loved one has cancer, and then suddenly the whole thing is taken away. Yeah. And is there a certain set of skills that you've been offering people who've been in this kind of grief process where there was so much um, turmoil and unexpected conditions? A set of skills. I I don't know that I would call what I've offered a set of skills. I often teach people how to use their breath. I teach them meta meditation. I urge them to create metas that speak to their particular situation. And I often that'll become part of the work with them. I've helped people create rituals on Zoom for bereavement and for funeral services. But I I wouldn't call it a skill set per se. I one of the things that I use a lot in my work is poetry because it bypasses cognition. It goes right to the heart and a good poem that's really accessible. And I try to use very accessible poetry. I think I'm using the term skill set because I feel as though 
our culture is so bereft of anything around death that is holding in the way you're inviting people to hold their experience of grief in this book. So it's almost like you're offering people a whole other language, an entirely different frame with which to view grief. And for me, there's always some kind of skill involved when you step on a new path. How would you know how to walk the path if you didn't have someone like you, a guide, leading you? What I think about when you say that is, what's the quality of presence I can bring to another person? And I don't know how you teach that to somebody. I think part of it comes through a meditation practice, sitting with what is and bearing what is, bearing witness to what is. And I think part of it is as you model that for other people, it allows them more easily to do it for themselves. But I think what I find myself doing over and over is inviting kindness into the process, inviting self-compassion. I was talking to a client last night and she was down at the nursing home saying goodbye to her mother. She called me when she got back to the hotel and she said, Oh, I did the best I could. And I said, you know, you've done more for your mother over the last 10 years caring for her at a distance than anybody I know. Well, she said, I, I did what I had to do. I said, no, you didn't do what you had to do. You did what you chose to do. And you did work that very few people would do. You went to mm -hmm. great lengths. And she said, well, and then she, she dismissed it again. And I said, you know, you're pushing away what I'm saying. And what would happen if you really let in that you did a good job? And she started to cry our capacity to take in goodness. There's a, there's a phrase, love brings up anything unlike itself. I love that because our capacity to take in goodness often raises for each of us grief. And the tendency is to dismiss, you know, someone says, that's a nice black shirt you have on. And you say, oh, this, oh, this is old, rather than thank you so much and really taking in the goodness. Rick Hansen talks a lot about this in his work, which I'm sure you, you're familiar with on gratitude. Our capacity to take in the good, feel what's right and good in our lives alongside what's wrong increases our resilience. I mean, there's a lot of research on that. That's not my work for sure. Rick Hansen writes about that in a very accessible way. And I, I use a lot of his work. Oh, speaking of skill sets. I think one of the things that I do do, I try to remind people to do, is to keep a gratitude journal, even when they can't find anything good. And that by keeping a gratitude journal each night, they begin to look for what's right and not at the exclusion of what's wrong, but alongside what's wrong so that we hold what's right in equal proportion to what's wrong because the mind is hardwired to be negatively habituated. Mostly we're pitched towards what's wrong instead of what's right. We can increase our capacity to hold suffering if we grow a gratitude practice. And so that is a skill I try to teach people about lingering with what's good so that they can begin to rewire their brain a little bit and hold their grief in a more holistic way. Beautiful. I always give this example when I give talks. I'll say, after this talk, if I asked you to fill out an evaluation, and 20 of you say, oh, she gave a great class. And one person says it was terrible. Where does my attention go? It goes on the person who wrote a critical remark. What did I do wrong? And, and I can say that even as I know better. <laughs> it's a good example because there's a certain complexity in that, that I think 
you would be able to relate to in terms of what you do with your patient. If it was me, I got 20 people who said it was great. I wouldn't really learn anything from that. If I had one person who said to me whatever it was that they didn't like, it actually would cause me to consider whether or not the critique that they had has yes. some merit and yes. whether or that is something I could do better. But that is a set of skills that I think arises from a kind of lack of being lost in a very distorted, non-virtuous view of who I am. So in other words, if I am the kind of person who would only focus on that one negative review and all I would get out of it is I am a terrible person teacher. That in fact would be the kind of mental health issues that I think you and I are always offering these kinds of skill sets to people who suffer with that. But if I am the kind of person who's open and I can explore whatever this is and determine wisely whether or not there's any merit or whether this is just something particular to that person. So what that I've done is taken a death experience, a death of my own self-view that somehow I am great for everyone, which of course is not true. I'm never great for everyone. So to me, every experience we could possibly have is always an experience for awakening. Yes, I completely agree with you. And, you know, even if you are holding a specific view, like, well, you always have to look at the goodness, right? That could be a trap. You get into a spiritual bypass when you're only looking at the good. My teacher gave a great teaching the other night. He said, any relationship that's authentic has discord. Invite discord in. You could also say invite difference that will make the relationship authentic because all of us are just a bag of dirty potatoes that need to rub up against each other to make ourselves clean. I thought that was really wonderful. When I talk about this gratitude, I always say, this is never at the expense of what's wrong. It's only to hold what's right alongside. Negating the suffering is not what I'm about. You know, I wondered if you would be willing to talk about another kind of grief, which I think is pretty prominent these days. Most of us think about grief work when someone or something is really gone. What I'm noticing is that, especially among young people, there's a tremendous amount of grieving associated with the loss of their future, particularly around issues like climate disruption, you're touching on an area of grief called disenfranchised grief. And it's often grief that's non-death losses. So the loss of a future as we envisioned it, it's not the loss of a future, but it's certainly the loss of the dreams we had, the dreams we carried. It's the loss of the college experience as we expected it to be. I have small grandchildren who are on the screen all day because that's where school is, you know, the loss of sociability. There's so many losses that don't have ritual closures in them because they're non-death losses. Watching a parent get demented or gradually less able, not being able to go to the doctor without being terrified of getting COVID is a loss. Such a loss of any certainty or security the tendrils of this are so deep and wide. David Brooks in a column in the New York Times last April wrote that, described this time as being a river of woe running through the culture. 
And I think some of these disenfranchised losses are sometimes a little bit less visible because they're not a death. We don't have a ritual. We don't have gatherings around them, but they are shaping our life so deeply and they need to be named and they need to be acknowledged. Pet loss, I think, falls into this category too, although it's a death, but it's one of these disenfranchised losses that we don't give credence to, which can be pretty devastating for many people. In 25 years, this planet may not be livable. How would you suggest that a young person come to terms with that, to grieve the loss of a habitable planet? You know, I think the only thing each of us can do is to take the next best step in our world to alleviating whatever suffering we can manage. The thing to be careful of is not to implode in despair, even though these are dark times, because that will just feed the darkness. I think trying to find the place where we can make a difference and take the steps in that direction is almost all we can do, given the magnitude. And what about for those of us in our generation for whom the responsibility falls on our shoulders for not having done what needed to be done? We are complicit and accepting responsibility for that, taking responsibility for it, and then moving with it. I did this, I didn't do this, but in light of what I know now, this is what I'm going to do. That's all we can do because to linger in the woulda, coulda, shoulda is not going to help the environment. Now we seem to be moving into this eternal question. How long do I grieve? When am I supposed to feel like I can get back in life? The listeners cannot see the look on your face, but I wish they could. That's the question, one of the questions that drove the book. How long should grief last? I think it's David Kessler that says, grief lasts as long as you love. Don't cut your grief off because it's an expression of your loving. You're hardening your heart if you cut your grief off. When we first lose somebody, there's a searing pain in our life. It's the rug, it's the walls, it's the ceiling, it's all the furniture, it's all we see. And then as time passes, generally resources come in between our hearts and the room, and we start to have more color come into the room. But always there's a gray chair that will sit in the room where you should go and visit your grief and allow for it in some measure your whole life if you really love what you lost. I can still cry about my best friend who died about eight years ago. I miss her so much, and I remember her. My heart feels tender when I think about her. One of the things I think in terms of grief lasting, often one of the myths is that after a year, things get better. What I've found, and I, I know I've seen it other places, is that after a year, sometimes it, it feels a little worse. It's not that it gets worse, it's that we're dealing with it differently because the first year can be so overwhelming with closing someone's life, with just the logistics of the change. And then after that's taken care of, we begin to deal with the feelings that emerge and sometimes it can feel like we're going backwards, but we're not. It's just as long as grief takes. So there's a great Boston Globe article that was written by a woman named Joan Wickersham a few years ago. And she talks about being at a cocktail party. And she says, there's a man there who lost his wife a year ago and he's remarried her best friend. And there's a woman there who lost her husband four years ago. And every time she meets somebody, she brings up her husband's name. And Joan writes in this article, both of these are expressions of grief. 
And what I always say is there is as many expressions of grief as there are people who are grieving. And there's just no one way this looks. And there's no one set of time that it's going to take. We move on. We carry forward with us those we've lost. Grief shouldn't disappear. It becomes more manageable. It becomes integrated into your life. We carry it forward with us as a companion, a way to remember the love of the thing or the person we lost. You've been doing grief work in the cancer world for a very long time. Can I ask you a couple of questions about cancer in particular? I'm imagining you've worked both with people dying from cancer as well as the family members who are left behind. Is the grief work different for these two populations? Yes. The needs of the dying person are often disparate with the needs of the caregiver. One of the things that frequently happens is that they'll have a different relationship to talking about death, and that can be a source of stress for the couple. One wants to talk about it, and one doesn't want to because it means they'll lose hope. Often when someone's dying, one of the things that I do a lot of is legacy work, having them think about how they want to be remembered, what difference their lives have made. I have a way of writing different things with them that they leave for loved ones. I do a workshop often called Creating a Legacy from Everyday Life. And very often I have people in there that are dying. That's not a workshop that someone who's caregiving, someone who's dying would be likely to take. It's different work. The focus is different. Person who's caregiving is living with anticipatory grief, knowing it's coming, not knowing how it's going to look, what's going to be expected of them as it comes. And then in the grief, very often there's the grief of the loss of the role because the role gave them so much focus and so much meaning. So that's what I call a secondary loss. When someone we love dies, we call that the primary loss in the field. But often there's a a variety of what we call secondary losses. So we may have the loss of income. We may have the loss of economic security. We have the loss of a co-parent or a co-grandparent. You may have the loss of a traveling companion. And these secondary losses that accompany the primary loss are not secondary in impact. In fact, sometimes they can be greater than the primary, but they're secondary to the primary loss. Often people are relieved to even hear there's a word for that because they're missing many things peripheral to the person. Naming these griefs and giving people a label is really helpful and it legitimizes what they're feeling and helps create some meaning and structure on it. Oh, this is so beautiful. I love the idea of doing a legacy. What a gift that you leave behind. And then I also wanted to find out, you know, especially with cancer, often people in their 30s, 40s get cancer and certain cancers die, which means they're leaving behind very young children say a little bit about grief work that is either done or you've done with children. I haven't done any work with children. I'll tell you a story about a young mother who had two small children who were, I think they were like three and five or four and six when she died. And I worked with her for two or three years before she died. She was an English teacher. She said to me, everything I've ever hoped for has never happened. So I'm afraid to hope. I've been taught not to hope. We talked about this concept that was written about by a a researcher and a colleague of mine named Kato Weingarten called Reasonable Hope. And I said to my client, let's think about what's reasonable hope. What could you hope for? She said, well, of course, I hope they'll find a cure for my disease. Well, 
that was not going to happen. She was really sick. She had metastatic disease. I said, what's another hope? And she said, I want my kids to remember who I was. I want them to know me, even though I know I'm not going to be there. So then our work became, what could we do right now so that your kids will remember you? What she did, she went out and she bought a book for each of their birthdays from when she was dead. She wrote a note with each book telling the child when she'd read the book, why she loved it, and brought in her life through the book through the age of 21. So when she died, there were a stack of books for each of their birthdays until they became 21. There's always a pathway towards a reasonable hope. If your only hope is to live, you can't work with that, especially if someone has a terminal disease. But most people want to find ways to be remembered. They want to find ways to leave something to their loved ones. And that's often what I help them find and do. That is so touching. And one of the things that our culture has prevented people from really embracing, especially our medical culture, which is so attached to life, 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 no matter what, it just completely negates the beauty that you are expressing here of not just preparing for death, but making it possible to be an engaged person even after you're gone. Yeah, yeah. And we all have that capacity if we plan and do what we need to do. I can't tell you how many new patients I get. And this is a habit of mine now. At some point early on in our work, I will ask, do you have a will and an advanced directive? I practice in Silicon Valley. Many people don't have a will. And these are people who have quite a bit of resource and they also have children. It's remarkable to me that the fear around the inevitability of death is so high that people will not do what they can to intentionally provide for whoever is left behind. Yeah, we live in a death-denying culture. Do you know Ellen Goodman's work? Yes, She says something that's really wonderful about preparing advanced directives. It's always too early until it's too late. If we could let the inevitability of our death shape our lives, we would not live the way we live. How would we live? That's an interesting question. I think we would be less about acquisition and more about connection. That acquisition has become a way to ward off mortality and our obsession with working out. What's interesting is when we're dying, whether we worked out or not isn't going to matter. What's going to matter is what is our mental state and developing a meditation practice is going to serve us when we're dying. Whether we've been to the gym or not is not going to do anything. Yes, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, all the practice one does in one's life is for the moment of death where one has the capacity to recognize the clear light awareness and achieve actual awakening. We are coming to the end of our time together, and I really want to give you an opportunity, first of all, to talk about anything we haven't talked about yet that you think is missing in the conversation. The one thing I I would probably just add that I think has been especially important during COVID is that one of the resources that we write about in the book is restoring ourselves in nature. And I think the natural world has become, and I think actually it's exposed the climate change crisis as well, because we've lost so much of what has been restorative to us. But restoring and using the natural world to help us hold grief I think has been really important. And I know that last March, April, May, 
many of my friends in Boston when it was dark and cold and COVID was raging, always tried to spend time outdoors in some kind of park or city area or leave the city. Taking ourselves into the natural world is one way to really increase our capacity to hold the sorrow that's inevitably we're all going to face in the coming weeks and months as more and more people die. And we're called upon to hold this suffering in ways that we can help each other, not ways that we implode, but where we can reach out and really be with one another in more compassionate, open-hearted ways. Yes, there's actually quite a lot of research now on what's yes. colloquially called forest bathing. Yeah. Oh, yes. I, I'm in the middle of a Japan. book by, on that subject. I always tell people to get the book and not to get the e-version because the, his photographs beautiful. are so wabi-sabi. They're just so beautiful. Mm. And I lived in Japan. That book aesthetically has such a feeling beautiful. of richness of what forest bathing actually is about. And it's astonishing to think that these trees emit something that enhances our immune system. The interaction between humans and the natural world, E.O. Wilson calls biophilia, where we have a natural affinity for the natural world. And we need to get out from behind our computers and our indoors and take advantage of that to whatever extent we can. Through the course of human evolution, our relationship with trees has always been expressed in many of the religious traditions that always included different kinds of trees and yeah. what they were good for and what to use them for. I think it's just the Judeo-Christian traditions have lost that connection for lots of reasons, which we won't go into. There are many ways people can research trees as medicine. I know this is a book about grief, but frankly to me, this is a book about how to cultivate mental well-being. That's interesting that you say that. I think that's exactly right. It is about that. It's about grief, but it's about something larger. Befriending grief and starting there is a step towards our mental health Yes, and our wellness. Our wellness has to include having a place for grief in our life. Do you want to point listeners to a website? My website is openingtogrief.com, and on it is an events page, which has a lot of virtual readings around the country. And I would urge anybody who's interested any more in this topic, I'll be talking more about the book in a slightly different way at those readings. And I always say to people, try to buy locally because we need our local bookstores and review on Amazon. <laughs> openingtogrief.com is my website. And there's also contact information on there if you want to get in touch with me for any reason. Well, this has been such a pleasure. And I, I so appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I loved talking with you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.